Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, this is a pretty significant year in terms of commemorating and remembering. Exactly 100 years ago, in 1921, the island of Ireland went through huge transformation with the main thrust of the War of Independence, the establishment of the Northern State, the truce that brought the War of Independence to an end, and the treaty negotiations which led to the setting up of the Free State in this jurisdiction. So throughout the year, we're going to dip in and look back at various elements of those momentous times. Today, we're going to examine the life of a leading figure during that revolutionary period, but one whom I think history has, if not forgotten, certainly relegated from the front line. Arthur Griffith founded Sinn Féin in 1905. He was a friend of the 1916 leaders and was a politician, a strategist and visionary about how to break the link with Britain and what a new state or country should look like. Crucially, he was also one of the two leading figures in the delegation that went to London to negotiate the Anglo-Irish Treaty in November 1921, the other of course being Michael Collins. Now, Griffith was to die the following August of ill health. I think he actually dropped dead from a heart attack and many ascribe his demise to a broken heart over how the treaty led to division and ultimately the civil war. To discuss the life and legacy of Arthur Griffith, I'm joined by Colm Kenny, Professor Emeritus at the School of Communications in DCU and the author of The Enigma of Arthur Griffith, Father of Us All. Colm, you're very welcome. Thank you. Colm, I suppose the best place to start actually is with the title of your biography. It portrays Griffith as maybe the father of the revolution and all that flowed from it, yet he doesn't seem to occupy that position in the popular imagination. It's very true that, and it's a remarkable thing because he was uh, very well regarded in his day by many people. He had founded Sinn Féin, uh, uh, as you say, and indeed Arthur Griffith was was said to have been described by Michael Collins as the father of us all. In fact, Collins, when he was in London during the treaty talks, told Griffith that he used to think of him when he was younger as Ireland. So he was this father figure, and I think partly it may be that he was forgotten because of a certain level of guilt about what happened. Griffith was terribly committed to avoiding division. Uh, That was why he yielded to de Valera, for instance, so easily in the contest for president of Sinn Féin after 1916. He had been to Broadstone Station to see off Charles Stuart Parnell to Parnell's last meeting uh, before his death. Just putting that into context, we're talking there now around what... um 1890s. Yes, I mean, Griffith was much older than most of the other participants in the 1916 uh, era, and that's worth remembering too. He, he, was a, he had accumulated a great deal of political experience, and his experience and memory of, the, of what had happened to Parnell, although he was not a Parnellite himself, he regarded himself as more radical, his, his recollection of that division gave him a complete uh, adversity 
to splits and divisions. Uh, and he worked very hard to avoid them. And I think what happened when he died was so traumatic that many people felt guilty about it. And, and that guilt itself, in a way, was part of the reason it was forgotten. Just to touch on that, you meant because I suppose some people perhaps wouldn't be familiar with it, but it's interesting that you, you mentioned the Parnell split. That, of course, was back in the 1890s. Parnell, the uncrowned King of Ireland, as he was known, uh, an issue arose in his personal life. He had an affair with, I think, Kitty O'Shea was the woman's name. And as a result of that, there was a major split. And a lot of people felt that that set back Ireland's cause at the time and as you say I wasn't aware of that that Griffith was around at that period and it obviously left a major impression on him. Around and very active in in the young movements for change Um, the the debating clubs and societies that young working men set up were in a sense a spark that was to, to, to light up the movement that became Sinn Féin and Griffith was very much part of that. His mentor uh, was, was the great old Fenian, John O'Leary, uh, who lent him books and helped to guide him, uh, and indeed who reinforced Griffith's adversity to gimmicks uh, and to violence for the sake of violence. It's sometimes said that Griffith was a pacifist. He wasn't. He, he had his rifle and exercised with his rifle after the whole gun running, but he had learned not that violence could be counterproductive. And he was very adverse to using it, but not totally against that. And indeed, during the War of Independence, when he was acting president of the Doyle, he didn't shirk from doing what was necessary. Uh, But he had formed this view under the mentorship of people like John O'Leary. And going back to his earlier life, what did he do for a crust initially? Was he how did he earn his living? And and then the founding of Sinn Fein. What was his ideal behind the, the founding of of, of uh, that organisation? Well, firstly, in terms terms of earning money, he was a qualified printer and a good one. But it was very hard to make money at that in those days. And once he threw himself into running weekly newspapers from eighteen ninety nine onwards for two decades, he was living in poverty. His father had had become very ill and died. And he looked after his mother and delayed his marriage, in fact, to look after. He lived right in the heart of Dublin near Montauk. So he was not a rich man. He dedicated himself to the movement. And the movement became Sinn Féin. And that word movement, again, is very important in terms of Griffith's hatred of division. He didn't see it as a political party. He saw it as a broad church that brought together different points of view different nationalist groups, and he spent a number of years ensuring that it would come together into what became Sinn Féin. Um, And and he he always tried to make room for other points of view. His newspapers were very broad in their ambit. I mean, the United Irishman, which James Joyce said was the only paper in Dublin worth reading, according to Joyce's brother, it it included all kinds of people, right wing and left wing, uh, a very broad range of literary and political figures and was a very exciting newspaper for that reason. And that was the way, that was the kind of approach he brought to politics too, and that he wanted to bring to Ireland uh, as a whole, uh, and and why the the Civil War really was such a tragedy, and as you say, broke his heart. And did he take part in the 1916 Rising? He wasn't out with a gun in 1916, um, even though, as I say, he had his rifle from the... Uh, Holt gun running and I found a, a, a photograph of him drilling with it um, but he was at a very important meeting in 1914 that Sean Kelly organised at which the signatories uh, were present and a number of other leading figures and they were planning what should happen during the Great War in terms of the revolt and he was 
he was at that meeting uh, asked to keep up his work as leading propagandist and ideas man. And he was kept out of the 1916 uh, rebellion. He had asked to be kept informed of it. Uh, and indeed, they protected him against it, in a sense, by not informing him of it. And his widow said that Sean McDermott, before he was executed, actually sent him an apology through somebody else for not having told him about it. It wouldn't have been his cup of tea. And in any event, he had notoriously poor eyesight, so he would not have been very good with a rifle. They wanted to keep him aside so that he would continue to uh, lead the ideas for the Republican movement. Um, he was still arrested, though, and there was a real possibility that he might be executed. And he made his last will and arranged with a priest to what should happen in the, in the event of his death, because he was, after all, being blamed for the rebellion, which became quickly known as the Sinn Féin Rebellion, because that's what the British dubbed it, even though it was organised by uh, really a faction of the Republican movement rather than the broader Sinn Féin grouping. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. It was, it was the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, that really was behind it. But the British forces and, and the, uh, the British administration had a notion, I think, did they dub it the Sinn Féin Revolution and, and they sort of elevated the role that Griffith and Sinn Féin had, had, uh, had in it? That's precisely what happened, yeah. Because Griffith himself, had a, it's not terribly clear exactly what his position with the IRB was, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, but that's because it's a secret of organisation. Certainly the meeting that Sean Kilkelly organised was an IRB meeting, and IRB money went into Griffith's papers but he kind of kept it at arm's length somewhat. Um, but as you say, the British very quickly dubbed it. I think they thought that it would discredit 1916 by dubbing it a Sinn Féin revolt. And the news, some of the newspapers uh, also called it that. But what it actually did, um, given the public reaction against the British following the executions in 1916, was that it, that it put Sinn Féin centre stage, which was why the survivors of 1916, the volunteers, were so eager uh, to get control of Sinn Féin and, and to put Devon area in there so that they could, as it were, take control of the political movement rather than leave it to some of the older guards. The young bloods wanted that and they engineered it that, that uh, Devon area would get the leadership. But as I say, Griffith stood gracefully aside and became uh, acting, he became deputy president to Devon area. When Devon area went to, to the United States for more, most of the War of Independence, Griffith actually stood in as president of the Doyle and president of Sinn Féin. So effectively, as you say, the volunteers, I suppose in some ways you might call it a reverse takeover of Sinn Féin in that respect and, and, and put their man in effectively. And as you say, Griffith didn't resist it in, in the name of unity. Did he then have a significant role during the, the War of Independence as it developed from 1919? A reverse takeover. I like that expression. Yeah, it's a good one indeed. Uh, yes, he certainly had a significant role because uh, De Valera, uh, as I say, went for most of the War of Independence to the United States and uh, Griffith was the uh, acting president of the DOI. Now, there, there's there been a shortage of work in some ways on the functioning of the DOI itself as opposed to what was happening out in the field with the, with the gunmen, as it were. But the DOI was getting on with a whole range of measures, trying to raise finance for the new government, organise a working plan for a new state, putting in place Doyle courts, trying to keep civil order. There was a lot of work being done by Doyle there, and there was negotiations throughout with the British in certain ways as to what was to happen. 
Um, and a number of historians of the period have noted how close, in fact, they came to a successful possible uh, conclusion to those negotiations by late 1920 uh, into 21. But then, of course, the, the war took a turn for the worse for the black and tans and so on and became a much, much more vicious business right up until the truce in 1921. Uh, so, yeah, they were busy the whole time and they were being, Griffith was continually harassed. I mean, he spent a lot of time in jail, probably more than anybody else, Griffith, over the years. And the stories of his family being harassed in the house in Clontarf uh, and, and terrorised by, by British Crown forces and of Sinn Féin's headquarters in Harcourt Street being bombed by the British Crown forces. Uh, you know, he was living on his nerves the whole time as well as trying to keep up this complex administrative job that he had. And then we come forward to the truce and um, there's the decision to form a delegation to go to London to negotiate a treaty. Was Griffith always likely to be in that? Well, he would have expected to have been part of that, definitely, as de Valera's deputy, absolutely. But at the same time, he, he would have expected de Valera to go as well, I would have thought. Well, de Valera went, of course, in July for the initial talk with Lloyd George. Um, which he did largely on his own, even though he brought other people with him. And this is sometimes forgotten. I mean, we, there's quite a lot of criticism of the way in which the later treaty negotiations were sometimes conducted by um, only two or three of the five plenipotentiaries that went over. But de Valera himself had been very careful to meet Lloyd George three or four times on his own in July, uh, which was something of a surprise, I think. But, I mean, again... Griffith went along with that, no problem. The big surprise was that de Valera didn't go back to London in October when the talks proper began. That was quite remarkable. There's always been a theory, Column, in terms of uh, Dev not going. One element of that theory was that when he went in July, he spotted what was on offer. He realised it wasn't going to be enough to satisfy a lot of the activists back home and he decided he better stay out of it for the, for his own sake. I mean, is there anything in that vein that emerges from, from Griffith's papers or any thinking on his part that uh, that was Dev's attitude? Or maybe that's a bit unfair to Dev, I don't know. Well, in, in writing my, my biography, The Enigma of Arthur Griffith, I, I've, I definitely have tried not to kind of be captured by Griffith and to take a, a position against Dev and Air. I mean, I grew up in a house for my mother, a lot of sympathy for Dev, and my father was more of a... Uh, a free state man. Um, and I've tried to be fair uh, and to understand Dev. And there are a lot of theories, actually, why he didn't go to London. Um, unfortunately, Griffith doesn't leave a lot of papers. They got destroyed. Some of them they deliberately destroyed because they didn't, they, during the War of Independence, because they were afraid they would implicate others. And later on, they just weren't kept, most of them. So we don't have great insights into, into personal insights from any collection of, of Griffith papers, whereas Dev has voluminous papers out in UCD archives and was very careful to cultivate his reputation in later life. Um, there, there are different... I mean, another theory was that Dev was keeping himself in reserve, that you know he hoped they'd get to a point where the talks would reach nearly breakdown and he would arrive in dramatically then and be able to demand one last concession. Um, I don't know how convincing people find the various theories, but I find it very hard to understand how when the Prime Minister of 
the United Kingdom and of a great empire, was putting himself at the table in London to meet the Irish. The leading Irish politician of the day wasn't sitting on the other side of the table. It's not normal diplomacy, in my view. And I think it was um, counterproductive. The other, another theory was that he stayed at home to keep the hard men in check. I mean, there were, there were only seven cabinet members in those days, you know, uh, and you had three of them, Barton, Collins and Griffith in London. It was Cosgrave. And then there were two hardliners, some would say wild men, Austin Stack and Cahal Brewer. Stack would probably have never have accepted any arrangement. Um, uh, but there was an ocean that Griffith was here keeping them in check. But it meant that you had this division between, if you like, the more hardliners in Dublin who were second guessing what was done in London. And it just didn't add up to a recipe for easy negotiations or successful negotiations, in my opinion. Particularly when you remember that the people in London were going into the lion's den. I mean, they were there for two months in the heart of the empire. They, the British had all the comforts of home and all the comforts of the administrative apparatus around them. They didn't even have to take a bus to these talks. And the Irish were, you know, among hostile people, the word murderers being painted on the footpath outside the house and hands place where Griffith was lodged, gunmen defending them, you know, a real fear they could be executed if the talks broke down, you know, uh, Collins secretly agreeing to have an aircraft on standby so they could fly back to Dublin if the talks broke down. They were under immense pressure. So why, why De Valera wasn't there to lead them? We'll never know for sure, and we'll never know what difference it would have made. But it didn't, in the end, um, work out, you know, very well. I think. No, but I mean, the, the, that, the first point you make there, I think, is re- really more than any hits at home. Lloyd George was the prime minister. The UK was the biggest power in the world at the time. This was historic in terms of any small country that had been part of the empire negotiating an exit as such and how you would go in there without your leader is 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 uh it's mind-boggling when you look back at now i mean if you what strikes me Colin, if you look now on, on a far more mundane basis but we're used to coalition governments in this country and and the negotiating teams that uh devise a coalition government never include the leader so I mean, if you were to use a comparison, it would be nearly like if one of the one of the negotiating uh, parties had their leader in there and the others didn't. It would look ludicrous. Similarly, you'd have to wonder why Dev wasn't there. And you've a quote there, a piece you wrote recently in relation to negotiations. I think uh, I think it was from Griffith in the Dáil when they were debating the treaty in April twenty two. He said, "When I was going to London, Mister De Valera said to me, there may have to be scapegoats." Collins and myself were willing to be scapegoats. Mm. I know it's 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 hard to know what they had in mind or what they hoped out of it. I mean, when the very fact that the there was a truce meant there had to be compromise. I mean, the the Republican movement was not going to get everything it wanted by sitting at a table when it had failed to get it at the end of a gun. And the real danger was, of course, that now that the British were freed up from the burden of the Second World War completely, that if 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 um, hostilities began again, you wouldn't be up against ragtag people like the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, but you would have had a real force of British uh, army, uh, undivided attention of the British army back in Ireland. And you also, of course, had a very heavily armed and determined Ulster volunteer force in the north. So there had to be a compromise. 
Um, so it was difficult to see what, you know, not sending your best team to London could possibly achieve um, that, you know, that, that, that you would get that, how you would do better by holding back. If, if the talks broke down, um, it was not going to be to the benefit of, of the Irish Republicans. One other thing in that respect, as you say, Griffith was older than a lot of them. He was very active for up to 20 years and more prior to 1916. And I just wonder, therefore, would he have been far less wedded to this notion of a republic, which was, of course, declared in Easter 1916, uh, than perhaps the, the, the more younger people who were there? Would he have had a more realistic view of what was on offer? Because I suppose it's easy to say no, but when you look back and while everybody was acting in good faith, the notion that uh, the British would agree to a republic and that uh, you were prepared to continue fighting into infinity until such time as you achieved it. I mean, in some ways it seems crazy, but you'd wonder, was Griffith, because of his experience and because 1916 wasn't the starting point for him as it was for so many others, was he more realistic as to what might have been on offer? I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's sometimes said, just as it is said that, that he was a pacifist, which is wrong, it's sometimes said he wasn't a Republican. He was a Republican, but he had advanced uh, back in the early 1900s a model for the future based on the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In fact, he produced a book pamphlet on this that was a bestseller called The Resurrection of Hungary. Uh, and that, that was... For its day, it was more radical than home rule, although it was looked back on later as being quite conservative. But it saw Ireland getting its own parliament, a bit like before 1800, but remaining with under the same crown or king as Britain. And he saw that as a realistic way forward. It was, it was dismissed at the time as being you know, far-fetched, the very notion of that. So he, he, was, he was definitely somebody who was prepared to settle for that. And, and that was a realistic assessment, by the way, of how you would maintain a united Ireland. We've spoken about how he had this aversion to disunity and splits. He wanted a united Ireland. He knew the strength of feeling in the north of Ireland. I mean, he'd come from Cavan, he'd background, he'd Protestant ancestors and so on. And um, he, he, he knew what would be required to keep people together and was prepared to make compromises he was more interested in the rea- in the practical realities, economic. He was very big into economics. People don't realise that. And he got complimented in this, for instance, by the, by the great 20th century Irish uh, economist Paddy Lyons, who, who you know, who, who recognised his grasp of things like investment opportunity in Ireland, the way the British banks controlled money in Ireland, how difficult it was for businesses here to get, to get money and to ship goods, like these kind of nitty-gritty, pragmatic things that we don't talk about enough. Griffith was very good in all of those. And there was a lot of that stuff in his newspapers. So he had that kind of a, a practical approach. And he was also quite an experienced politician. I mean, De Valera, that's unfortunately, De Valera wasn't an experienced politician. He had virtually no political experience. He, 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 he seems never to have joined Sinn Féin. He, he had a grudge against it. He blamed it for... Um, he believed wrongly, as it happens, that, that it had prevented him getting ahead in the Irish language movement that his wife wanted him to, to get involved with. Um, and he doesn't seem to have joined it until you know, he actually became its leader. But he, other, other, besides that, he wasn't the man who was involved in politics very much. I mean, when he was walked into elections by other people, which he won, um, and 
he didn't have to do much nitty-gritty engaging and compromising, which is the stuff of politics, the art of the possible, where Griffith had a lot more knowledge of what was what was going to fly and what wasn't. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. No, we come to the treaty negotiations. We all know the outcome. Um, a couple of things about that. One, despite everything that has evolved over the last century, as I understand it, the major bone of contention was not the splitting of the island as such, but the oath of allegiance that was required to the king for the new parliament in the free state. And one other element to that, um, again, as I understand it, there was this issue that was thrown at Griffith during those very bitter treaty negotiations in the Dáil uh, after they came back home. And there was this suggestion that he'd been tricked by Lloyd George, that he'd made a commitment to Lloyd George and this was thrown in their face and that therefore he had some blame for what those on the Republican side regarded as a highly unsatisfactory deal. Yeah, well, there's two things there. First of all, I don't think that uh, he did that, you know, a, a secret deal of any kind. I think that's a, a completely unfair on him. I don't think there's evidence for it. It's based largely on um, an account of events in Frank Pakenham, Lord Longford's book published in 1935. Pakenham was quite sympathetic to De Valera. Uh, and, and this is based on an alleged um, document that uh, Austin Chamberlain, the head of the Tories, uh, drew up um, and, and allegedly got Griffith to assent to. Uh, and, and I'm afraid there there isn't any evidence of that. And I mean, the document that, that, that uh, Pagenham thought he was speaking about, I have found, was actually an earlier document that's in the Houses of uh, uh, a parliament at Westminster in the archives there. Because Lloyd George was supposed to have waved this letter, wasn't he, in the face of the Irish delegation and said, I have this promise from Griffith or something to that effect, wasn't it? That's right. I mean, that, it was the last day or the last night of treaty negotiations and it seems to have been an incredibly hectic event. I mean, the British were very angry when it started. Lloyd George is waving various papers in the air and the British ministers were threatening all out war in Ireland, immediate war. And then Lloyd George produced this other document, then slid it from an envelope and pushed it across the table. And you said, he said, you agreed to this. But Griffith would never have agreed to anything like that. It simply wasn't plausible. And he had kept de Valera briefed of what Lloyd George was doing. And he had explicitly said um, that he hadn't agreed to it, that it was Lloyd George's idea. And he couldn't agree to it, he told Lloyd George. And there's co- confirmation of Griffith's, by the way, Griffith's um, version of events from the diary of the British Cabinet Secretary, which was only published 50 years after the event, Thomas Jones' diary, which 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 um, confirms that Griffith spelt out the obvious that he couldn't answer for other members of the delegation, and it wasn't his proposal, and he certainly wasn't going to give it uh, an approval approval of it, um, you know, three or four weeks in advance of the end of negotiations. But on the on the other point as to the fact that um, partition itself wasn't the breaking point the the it's hard to understand even now that both sides had enormous symbolical investment in the notions of the status of the crown of the king's role in relation to ireland and also as to whether or not the ireland stayed within the empire or had some other kind of association with britain and the commonwealth outside of the empire and they got very hung up on these uh, symbols. Well, symbols are important. People's feelings are very strong, but it was 
for for some Republicans, it was inconceivable that they would still have to have some kind of relationship to the king, even if Canada and Australia had clearly got very independent uh, states and still had um, a link there. And for the British equally, they were not about to leave let a country just leave the empire so abruptly. There was a lot at stake with other countries like India and Egypt beginning to stir up um, resistance. You know, they weren't in a mental place to let that go. So in, in the, the toing and froing, an awful lot of energy was spent on these issues, the parsing and analysing of the, of the oath of allegiance and so on. Um, and there was an attempt to see what, you know, the Irish... The Irish were prepared to make compromises on that if the British made compromises on the north of Ireland. And the British did press hard for the Unionists to go into some kind of a united Ireland. But the, the compromise in the end was the Boundary Commission, which apparently was going to uh, reduce the size of Northern Ireland because it was going to draw boundaries on the basis of what people wanted. So, for example, Tyrone and Fermanagh, which in the 1921 general election had voted by uh, 45 uh, to 37 in favour of nationalists and Sinn Féin candidates, was expected in such a situation to become part of the Republic. And Collins and Griffith persuaded themselves too that um, South Armagh and maybe parts of Derry and South Down would become parts of the, of the free state, I should say, not the Republic. And they believed that once that happened, Northern Ireland wouldn't be viable and they could persuade Northern Ireland on that, for that and other reasons to come into the free state or to become, you know, a united country. Um, they, they kind of ignored the fact that some Protestants on the south side of the border might want to actually join, uh, join into Northern Ireland in places like Donegal or Cavan and Monaghan. But in the end, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't copper fastened sufficiently, the whole arrangement. The other thing about that, there's also been speculation as well, Cullum. We all like to engage in that in different forms in relation to history. But, for example, had the South, the Free State, not become preoccupied with a bitter civil war, had Collins and Griffith, who died within a week of each other in August 22, had they both survived and having been the architects of the treaty, is it possible that the, the, the Boundary Commission could have gone another way and perhaps those extra two counties would have been in the south, which would have put a whole different complexion on what evolved into Northern Ireland. Yeah, it was certainly a lot more likely. I mean, there is no doubt about it. If the energy that was dissipated in the Civil War had been put into building up the state, um, it could have been a lot different. I mean, even I think we haven't even really in, in this state consider the damage that was done to the infrastructure to the state itself in terms of facilities and, and daily life by the Civil War in the 1920s. But in terms of the, the possibilities in relation to unionists, I mean, had we been trying to find compromises, had we been insisting that the Boundary Commission work to some, in some, some way, um, yes, I think far more was possible, but that didn't happen. Absolutely. Collins and Griffith obviously thrust together forever in terms of the treaty negotiations, what they came back with um, in, in their different ways, leading the, the, the pro-treaty sites thereafter. Did they, now both of them only lived another eight months, but that was a really tumultuous period. Did they remain close up until the end or was there some tension between them as, as things 
developed after the, the treaty, the treaty debate, and then the beginning of the civil war? Well, there was all, there was tensions between them, certainly as there were between all the leaders, but um, they were fairly, uh, you know, fairly of one mind as to what they had done. They had bitten the bullet. Now, I mean, there's some debate as to whether or not uh, the the famous statement by uh, Collins or the famous quota statement that he signed his death warrant, uh, that the letter that is that is quoted was was genuine, but. Um, both men knew what they had done and that they had uh, done something very significant and they stuck with that without a doubt um, to the very end. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think there was any sig- significant differences between the two men, to be quite honest. And I, another thing, I mean, I would like to say too is that sometimes because of what happened later, they're associated with Fine Gael, as if they somehow were Fine Gael. And yeah. I saw... Leo Radker, when he was Taoiseach one night on the BBC talking to on a news interview just before it began, you know, when they were talking over it to introduce it, he was showing the BBC person around government buildings and he came to a portrait of Collins and he said, this is Michael Collins who founded my party. I mean, Collins was <laughs> dead a long time ago. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I don't think Griffith can be claimed. Griffith was probably too radical for Fina Gael, you know. Uh, not Republican enough for Fianna Fáil. Collins was probably a bit too radical for Fianna Gael too. Well, maybe so, you know, but I mean, the, 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 the two men, who knows? I mean, Griffith, Griffith's wife, Griffith's widow said that he had promised her in London that he would be out of politics by the following August, which of course turned out to be prophetically true, but not in the way they imagined, you know. She she never had great interest in politics uh, and uh, she, she felt he was killing himself, you know, by it and that he had never made a bean and that was her attitude uh, and he apparently had said to her now I don't think it would have happened but he said to her I'll be out of the you know I'll be finished with this polit- political business by next year yeah you'd have to say she was right then finally Colm as we know as you say <laughs> Fine Gael captured Collins if you want to put it that way uh, even though he was dead before what, what even became coming to Gael was, was, was fully fledged at all um, and we did you know largely for 70, 80 years up until recent decades, a two-party state, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. Obviously, Dev was founder of Fianna Fáil. Fianna Gael uh, put Collins up there as their icon. And as a result of that, and as a result of Griffith dying when he did, and and, uh, then the coming to prominence of De Valera and Fianna Gael, between it all, it really seems that his his legacy, his, his, uh, his position in history, got a raw deal. Well, one of the things I try to do in the book is to highlight kind of that he was he was not a perfect person. No politician is. He had his faults. He he gave a platform to some anti-Semitic views in the United Irishman, but he's been scapegoated for that too, because he's been singled out in ways that aren't fair to him. And later comments that he made and changes uh, in his thinking and his, his, his affirmation of the role of Jews in the new free state are, are sometimes not even mentioned. He was very helpful to James Joyce, who was quite fond of him. He gave Yates a lot of boosts. A lot of a lot of cultural figures owed a, a lot to um, to Griffith. Uh, feminists have come to write about his support for women in 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 his day. Um, although, like a lot of politicians, he he was not prepared to put uh, uh, votes for women before Home Rule or, or, or a free Ireland. Um, he he was a colourful individual. He great. He loved ballads. He collected them up in McCall's pub there in Patrick Street in Dublin, where James Clarence Mangan used to drink. 
he published there was a little book of them published after his death. Um, he was very supportive when in prison. He, he had great reputation among prisoners for boosting their morale, organizing handball games and chess games. He loved swimming. He swam out nearly every day in uh, Dublin Bay. Uh, he, he was an unusual man um, and by no means perfect, but his political achievements were considerable. Um, his, his foundation of Sinn Féin, his support uh, for the men in 1916, his willingness to um, put himself second behind others whom he thought would lead the movement better, his managing of the Doyle when Dev went to America at such an important time, and finally his leadership of the treaty talks in London uh, were all formidable um, by any measure, uh, and he deserves our thanks. He does. Just one final thing occurs to me, uh, Colm, as I mentioned about Devon Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael claimed Collins. Um, <laughs> I, I know Sinn Féin has gone through about seven iterations over the decades and were very different uh, entity than what it started out as. Small bit ironic that um, Sinn Féin, even in its current guise, don't appear to uh, revere the man who founded the party they would claim to have a direct lineage to. You've said it very well. <laughs> you have, I, but I mean, I, I, that's, I, I mean, claiming, claiming politicians, you know, as your own. Uh, let's see, let's see Griffith for what he was. You know what, Harry Boland, who was on the other side in the Civil War, is, is reputed to have said, "Damn it, Pat," to a friend. He said, "Damn it, Pat!" Didn't Griffith make us all? And Arthur and uh, Michael Collins is reputed to have said that he was the father of us all. And I think we should, you know, remember that and remember why he's such an important founder of the Irish Free State and, and try and learn from him perhaps some lessons about the practicalities of politics going forward and not repeat some of the same mistakes now uh, as we approach the possibility of a border poll, for example. Learn from the pragmatism of Arthur Griffith. No better legacy for a politician from this island to have. Colm Kenny, author of The Enigma of Arthur Griffith, Father of Us All. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I'd also like to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer. Thank you, folks, for listening. Get us on all the usual platforms and you'll get us again next week. See you then.